Well, needless to say, it's good to be back, but I wish I was back and I was healthy. I left sick, got well, and then it came back on me again. So the day before I left, ah, such is the angelic conflict. But I will give a, uh, a full report on the trip to Kiev during the second hour today. So if you want to hear about what went on, then you need to stay. I've got, uh, along with... Uh, the report, I've got a number of pictures, so that will give you a good insight as to what's going on over there. It was a great trip, and even though I wrestled with whether or not I should go back, I realized uh, after I got there that that was uh, exactly what I needed to be doing. One other announcement, I want to get some names in the bulletin on the prayer list for the military. Uh, so you can write these in, and we'll add these, make these changes next week. Um, We've got three tapers to add. Uh, David Roseland, who has been here a few times when he was uh, in his last year at the uh, Military Academy at West Point. He came over here. That was my first summer here. And he is, uh, I think he has been, he, he is still uh, active duty, but I think he's been mobilized. And also uh, another taper, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Greg Rako. Uh, was called up. Uh, he's in the reserves in Houston. He's called up. He's been mobilized. And then uh, another Lieutenant Colonel Kim Hooper, who has uh, uh, been a taper, and he is serving attached with an embassy in Ghana, and we're just sending him about three or 400 tapes that he's taken over there to distribute while he is serving in Africa. So tapes are going out, and uh, we need to, especially during this time, we need to keep those men in the military uh, in our prayers. Also, we need to take uh, Caleb Haley's name off. He got out of the Marines last October, so take him out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess any sins in the privacy of your uh, soul to uh, God the Father, that you can have fe- be in fellowship, be filled with the Spirit, and prepare to study the Word this morning. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, once again, we are indeed grateful that we have the freedom to gather together to worship you and to study your word, that you have so blessed this nation in which we live, that we have this freedom still to study your word. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, to provide for its security. Father, during this time of of conflict, this war on terrorism and the possible war in Iraq. We pray that you would give our wisdom, give wisdom to our leaders, both uh, politically and militarily. We pray that you would watch over those who are associated with this congregation, who are serving in the military, that you would protect them, and that as they uh, carry out their various responsibilities, that they may do so as under the Lord, and that they might be a solid witness for you during this time. They will, in many cases, serve with people who may not have any understanding of the truth, may not have any real understanding of of your provision of salvation, and that this will be a tremendous comfort for them if they have to go into combat. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand what we study, that we might be challenged by your word, that we would be responsive to that challenge, 
and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how to apply these things in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we will spend a uh, few moments in <clears throat> spend a few moments in review because it's been two weeks since we covered this, and uh, I know that that's probably not uppermost in your mind. So we'll spend a little review, and then we will probably wrap this chapter this morning. I have some other things I want to add related to what we studied the last time. 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, verse 8. First Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10 are all built around the same subject, and that is what we call doubtful things or decision-making for the believer in areas where the Word of God does not give specific direction. And we have studied the introduction to this, these principles in chapter 8, and we began to go uh, cover them last week. Let's review them briefly. There are four basic laws that function under the filling of the Holy Spirit in relationship to the believer's spiritual life and decision-making. The first is the law of liberty. This is a spiritual ordinance directed toward the self that expresses the believer's freedom to glorify God. Galatians 6.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have liberty in many areas that the Word of God does not specifically address. The concept of the believer's freedom and liberty in these areas is not something that has always been understood in the history of Christianity. In fact, there have been uh, there are usually two different positions. One is that if the Word of God does not prohibit it, then it's okay. And the other is if the God, Word of God does not authorize it, then it's sin. <laughs> that uh, covers a lot of territory. That's why you have churches, some churches that think it is sinful to use musical instruments in church because the Bible doesn't mention that or authorize using uh, uh, organs in church, so therefore uh, we're not allowed to. You also find that with some uh, people who are uh, more traditional, and they think that that applies to guitars as well and some other things. But the principle is liberty and that we have freedom in the Christian life. So this rule confers on every believer the right to enter into any activity that is not described in the Scripture as sinful and will not cause personal failure or distraction in the Christian life. Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and verses 8 through 9, which is our passage this morning. The second law is the law of love. This is directed toward other believers. The law of liberty is directed toward self, the law of love toward other believers. This is a spiritual law based on consideration for immature believers, thinking about others, realizing that uh, Things that we do, decisions we make, activities we participate in can have a negative impact on other people. So it is getting outside of ourselves and thinking about others a little bit. Uh, this is clarified in 1 Corinthians 8.13 and exemplified by the Apostle Paul in the first part of chapter 9. This rule places love for the weaker Christian ahead of the law of liberty. As an application of impersonal love, the believer refrains from participating in certain activities, not because those activities are wrong in and of themselves, but in order to spare susceptible believers from temptation in their area of weakness. So it is being a little more sensitive to what may cause other believers to sin. Law of Expediency. This is a spiritual, this is directed toward unbelievers. The law of liberty toward self, our freedom in Christ, law of love directed toward other believers, recognizing that immature believers may use our, our behavior that is just and right and is uh, clearly legitimate as an excuse and rationalization for their own sin. And then the law of expediency is directed toward unbelievers. This is a spiritual ordinance based on consideration for the unbeliever. A believer refrains from 
activities, doubtful activities, not because they are sinful, but because they may mislead or offend an unbeliever and prevent him from recognizing the true issue of the gospel that Christ died for his sins. So the law of expediency means that I may have a certain right to engage in certain behavior, but I will not make an issue out of that if that becomes a distraction for an unbeliever in relationship to his understanding of the gospel. And then the fourth is the law of personal sacrifice. This is directed toward God. The law of personal sacrifice is the principal spiritual law that involves the abandonment of a completely legitimate function in life in order to more intensely serve the Lord in a specialized capacity. This does not mean, when we look at these things, it doesn't mean that you give certain things up always or for all times, but as we'll see, under certain circumstances and in certain situations, you may choose to refrain. Of course, that does not mean that you can't make the choice to completely refrain from certain things for a lifetime. And I think this is something that happens with uh, some people choose to be single in order to serve the Lord more effectively in their life, which the Apostle Paul certainly did. So this is the law of personal sacrifice, and the motive underlying this is always evangelism and spiritual growth of individual believers. Now, understanding the significance of especially the, the law of love, law of expedience, and law of personal sacrifice almost cuts across the grain for American believers. I think it probably for all believers because those three, those three laws uh, emphasize someone else. It's real easy for us to emphasize our own personal rights and our own personal uh, uh, liberties and what we have in Christ that is legitimate. But it's not always easy. It is not the role of the natural uh, individual operating on the sin nature to put others first. And that is involved really in each of the uh, other three laws, the law of love, the law of expediency, and the law of personal sacrifice. So I want to cover about five points related to, or eight points related to these three laws in terms of background understanding. First of all, we must remember that the spiritual life of the individual believer does not operate in a vacuum. You, you, there's a statement that no man is an island and no believer is an island. You don't live your life in isolation from other people. You don't operate in a vacuum. You don't live in a vacuum. We can't run around saying, well, I have a legitimate right to do this or to participate in that or to have this characterize my lifestyle. Uh, it doesn't matter what other people think. Why don't they grow up? Now, we all have a tendency to say that, and in some cases that's true. Uh, that, but that is not the emphasis in this particular passage. Our spiritual life, while it is your individual spiritual life, uh, operates, first of all, in relationship to each member of the Trinity, your relationship to God the Father, your relationship to Jesus Christ, and your relationship and fellowship with God the Holy Spirit is first and foremost. But secondly, the Scripture emphasizes that our spiritual life operates in relationship to other members of the body of Christ, and we cannot ignore that or reduce that in terms of its significance. The spiritual life operates in a context of relationship. That's what the word fellowship means. First of all, fellowship toward God, and second, fellowship towards other believers. Of course, before we're done, we're going to have to properly understand what Christian fellowship is. So the first point is the spiritual life does not operate in a vacuum. Now, this cuts across the grain in both the human viewpoint thinking of the Greek culture at that time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and it cuts across the human viewpoint thinking of American individualism. We live in a country that has been the character of America and the characteristics of Americans has been deeply influenced by the frontier experience of our country back in the 19th century. There's an emphasis on rugged individualism and a can-do mentality and that we're out there to make our life what it is on our own terms based on our own responsibility and our own talents and abilities. 
And so there is something in the culture, in American culture, that emphasizes individualism. But you see, the scripture has a tremendous emphasis on the relationship of the believer to other believers, and that uh, sometimes is counter to what we think naturally from our uh, cultural perspective. So we have to realize we're not independent, we're not operating on our own. There is an important dimension of the spiritual life that is related to the body of Christ. So this leads to point number two, which is a warning. A warning that is related, that's important for us, and it is a warning that too often is not understood or heeded by those uh, in churches that uh, are what we call doctrinal churches, churches that emphasize teaching more. Here's the warning. Don't fall victim to an isolationist, individualistic, or what I would call an atomistic view of the church. Now, what do I mean by an atomistic view of the church? Uh, if you break every, anything down to its most minute component, that's an atom. Now, if you have an atomistic view of anything, that means all you're doing is focusing on the individual components, and you're not looking at how those individual components relate to each other. And what happens too often, and I've seen this in doctrinal churches over the years, is we succumb to this atomistic view of the church. And the worst expression of this is that it comes from uh, not everyone who's a taper, but from people who are in geographical areas where there's no, where they just can't find a local church where they can uh, get involved. They are, uh, therefore, they end up listening to tapes all the time, and they think that somehow that's normative. They just live their life on their own. They never have anything to do with other Christians. They never get together and pray with other Christians. They never get together uh, and have communion, which is important and a, and a and, and significant part of the spiritual life. They never get together for corporate worship, or if they do, it's once or twice a year. And they think that they convince themselves that that's normative. That is an individualistic view of the church that, that destroys the whole, uh, or many dimensions of the believer's priesthood. The normative view of the Christian life as expressed in the scriptures is a view related to corporate involvement in a local church. God, uh, Jesus Christ rather instituted the local church in the church age. That's why it's called the church age. It is not an age for individuals where we just operate on our own. Now, I uh, recognize that there are circumstances and there are places in this country where you, where, and it's getting to be this way more and more, where it's very difficult to find a church where people who really want to know the Bible, really want to have the Bible taught, uh, where they can where they can find that. So consequently, they are being thrown back on tapes. They're thrown back on. Now we have CDs and the internet, and many people are getting their doctrinal nourishment from the internet. Nevertheless, we must recognize that that is, from the perspective of Scripture, an abnormal situation. The normal situation, as viewed by Scripture, is for pe- for believers to be involved in a local church ministry. Now, this is one of the things I really emphasize with uh, some young men that listen to uh, that are <clears throat> involved in uh, the tape ministry here. I know of one young man who is uh, uh, wants to go in the, in the ministry, wants to be a pastor. And I encouraged him to get involved in a local church. And it took him a while, but he finally found a, a local church where he could be comfortable. It wasn't everything he would have liked it to be. The pastor doesn't teach as much as he would like him to teach. But he's gotten to know the pastor. And just recently he emailed me that the pastor has invited him to teach and uh, teach a Sunday school class. Now, that's one of the emphasis in Scripture is that we are involved in a local church, not just for what we get out of it. You know, you always find these shallow, superficial uh, uh, intele- uh, Christians who are on an intellectual trip. And, you know, well, I can't learn anything there, so I'm not going to go to any local church. And yet they totally ignore the fact that part of the reason they may get involved in some local church that is far less than what they would like it to be is so that they can have an impact on that congregation. And here this this uh, young man now is involved in this small 
uh, or this, this church, and he's going to be able to teach Sunday school, and who knows the impact he can have communicating doctrine in that context. Uh, I know of another situation where a very close friend of mine could lived in a large metropolitan area, lived a long way from uh, a doctrinal church in that community, and due to logistical reasons, he couldn't get over there. And one day... He just decided to go visit this little this Baptist church down the street, and to his surprise, the pastor taught more than he preached. He believed in confession of sin before you take in the word. He had a free grace gospel, and he held a dispensationalism. So, um, and I know another situation where I encouraged a young young uh, man who's on tapes who wants to go into pastor to to check out two or three of the churches in his area that were pastored by. Uh, some Dallas Seminary graduates, and one of them isn't a dispensationalist. One's into lordship salvation, and the other's, you know, borderline uh, charismatic movement. So uh, the thing is, you you don't know where, what you're going to find. You may have to look and look and look, but you can find something probably that is uh, that where you don't have to compromise too much, and you can have a you can tolerate the situation, maybe just so you can have a ministry in that in that congregation. But the viewpoint of Scripture is that people need to be involved in a local church. So don't fall victim to an isolationist, individualistic, or atomistic view of the church where you can get along without the community of believers. Remember, the church is viewed as a body of believers. It is viewed as a collection of people. It is made up of every individual believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, the local church is merely a local representation of the universal body of Christ, which is uh, the large body of Christ composed of every single believer. Third point, then, is an understanding of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship has to do with the relationship of different believers with each other. Christian fellowship is not just social life, though. It's great. We have a wonderful time together. Believers can go out, out and have a great time together. I know the believers can also go out and have a great time sinning together. That's not Christian fellowship. Christian, what makes Christian fellowship, Christian fellowship is that it is centered around the Word of God, doctrine, and Jesus Christ. This last uh, summer, just a great example of this, I was uh, down in Fort Worth for the Conservative Theological uh, Society meeting, and there were several friends of mine who were also there in attendance. Plus, I had two or three friends that drove up from Houston because uh, there was one pastor there that was also a very good friend of mine. It was his birthday and my 50th birthday, so we all went out to eat at a nice restaurant down the stockyards in Fort Worth, and we uh, had a private room back in the back. And we had a fantastic time, and Jim Myers was there, uh, and his wife, and they both have beautiful singing voices, and we sang many old hymns, and we had a tremendous time talking about uh, how the Lord has blessed us all through the years, and that was just a tremendous time of Christian fellowship. And we just enjoyed ourselves tremendously that night, and, and I think the waitress was witness to at least ten times. <laughs> But that's the difference. You know, it was a great social time. We talked about all kinds of things. We didn't just limit ourselves to talking about doctrine. But, but the center point of the whole evening was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ and our common unity in Christ. And that's what Christian fellowship is. It has its ultimate center, fo- central focus on doctrine and what we have in common because of our salvation and because of our uh, our understanding of doctrine and the significance of doctrine in our lives. So Christian fellowship, we must understand, is not a means of spiritual growth. There's too many people who teach that, that you grow spiritually because of your fellowship with others. Fellowship is never mentioned in Scripture as a means of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth comes as a result of learning Bible doctrine and applying Bible doctrine under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, Christian fellowship is a consequence of spiritual growth. It is part of the function of our priesthood and our ambassadorship, and it's a vital part of that. Uh, Christian fellowship is part of our ministry to one another in the body of Christ. 
So point number four, this section, this section in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which deals with the, the issue of doubtful things and the issue of these four laws, really anticipates what Paul is going to teach about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So the fourth point recognizes that this section anticipates Paul's teaching on the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to just briefly look at several verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to emphasize what I have been saying about the role of every believer in terms of their impact on other believers. We all, I think in our culture, as I've stated already, we have to be careful not to be influenced by this sort of individualistic mentality that I can go live my Christian life without having any, any involvement with other believers, that I can just, just me and my tape recorder, me and my MP3 player, me and my computer, and we can do just fine. That is a truncated view of the spiritual life. Look at what the Scriptures teach. 1 Corinthians 12. Verses 12 through 14, Paul says, For even as the body is one, that emphasizes the fact that we are united in Christ, but we as believers are united in Christ. It's not just the fact that we are each individual united with Christ, but as a corporate body we are united in Christ. And Paul says, For as the body is one and yet has many members, that emphasizes the distinction of each member, And in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is emphasizing the importance of each member, but each member also has a role in terms of the whole. He says, yet the body is one and yet has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized, or that is identified into the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink, of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So the emphasis there is on the diversity in the body of Christ. There is a place for the individual, individual gifts, individual strengths, and individual ministries in the body of Christ, but there is also the emphasis on the unity of the body. Uh, verse uh, 18, but now God has placed the members, that's the em- emphasis on the individuals, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body. So even though there's the emphasis on individuals, they are in a body. It's a team. A team, whether you're talking about a basketball team, a football team, any kind of sports team, cannot function if you have uh, nine prima donnas or five prima donnas or or 12 prima donnas, whatever the team uh, number is, if everybody's out there to do their own thing and not work in cooperation with everybody else as a uh, interdependent unity, then it is going to be a failure. And yet that is the kind of the concept that too often is communicated in some doctrinal churches. So we have to have a slight correction to come back and emphasize the mutual interdependency of believers in the body of Christ. So Paul says, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Now there are many members, but one body, emphasis on unity. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Every individual is important, but they are also dependent and related to other members in the body of Christ. There is a mutual ministry, as we will see. Verse 22, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a weaker believer, stronger believer, whether you have a spiritual gift that is unseen, or whether you have a more obvious spiritual gift, every individual has a role and is important in terms of the mutual ministry and mutual benefit within the body of Christ. Verse 25, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care 
for one another. And here's, there's the emphasis. Believers are to care for one another. If you're not involved in a local church and you're just out there living your spiritual life based on a, on a tape recorder of the internet without in, in relationship with other believers, then you are missing out on the opportunity to care for one another. Again and again in scripture you have this emphasis on this term one another, which we'll see under the next point. We're to care for one another so that if one member suffers, all the members suffer. See, there's an interdependency in that concept. If one believer hurts, the whole body hurts. If one believer fails, the whole body feels it. There is an interdependency there and a mutual ministry. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It is a team concept. And then we come to... Verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So we have to recognize that the body of Christ as represented through local congregations is important. This isn't some sort of of, uh, elective for the Christian life where you can say, oh, I may or may not be involved in a local church as long as I'm getting some spiritual nourishment. You will live a a a Christian life that is missing crucial dimensions in relationship to your ambassadorship and your priesthood. Point number five, there is a major emphasis in the scriptures in terms of the, um, a major emphasis in the scriptures in terms of the Christian way of life is Christian service to other members of the body of Christ. Now, Christian service is not a means to spiritual growth. It is the consequence of spiritual growth. Therefore, someone who thinks they're growing spiritually, and it does not at some point in their spiritual advance culminate in spiritual service of some kind, that can be giving, it can be involved in a local church, it can be cleaning a local church, it can be involved in in uh, missions work, it can be involved in logistical support of missions, it can be involved in teaching and prep school. There are numerous ways in which uh, Christian service can manifest itself, but that Christian service is a, a crucial consequence of spiritual growth and is not optional. The term that is used in the scripture is one another. This is the biblical terminology. Let me run through just, uh, I haven't listed all of them, but these are a number of the key passages that talk about this mutual ministry to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. That means to think the same things toward one another in terms of doctrine. Romans 13.8 Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. And again and again and again, of course, as we studied, there are the mandates to love one another as Christ loved the church. You, and that is related to other believers. And that implies a circumstance where you are involved with other believers, not living your life in isolation from a local body. Romans 14.13 states, Negatively, let us not judge one another anymore, uh, but uh, <clears throat> uh, determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another believer's path. So that is a parallel passage to what we are studying in 1 Corinthians 8. Romans 15:14 says that we are to admonish one another. Now, you can't admonish one another if you don't have a biblical framework and doctrine in the soul as your uh, basis for your admonition and for correction. But this And this doesn't mean that you run around admonishing anybody you don't know because they do something you don't like. This clearly involves the context of a relationship with these other believers. But if you're not involved in a local congregation, then it's difficult for you to get involved with other believers. Uh, Galatians 5.13, we are through love to serve one another. This is Christian service in various different uh, forms. Uh, Ephesians 4.25 emphasizes the fact that we were our members of one another. We're not just individual believers out there operating on our own, but we are part of a team. We are members of one another. Ephesians 4.32, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is in the context of Ephesians, which is one of the great epistles on the church. So this involves ministry to one another. Furthermore, the filling of the Spirit results in in Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This brings in the whole dimension of corporate worship. Corporate worship, meaning the group of believers getting together to uh, worship God through the singing of hymns and, and praise. That is a consequence of the filling of the Spirit, and this, is, which is the command of Ephesians 5.18. So Ephesians 5.18, we have the command to be filled by means of the Spirit. And then the next verse says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I get a little frustrated sometimes. I run into believers who think, well, let's just get rid of the songs and just focus on teaching doctrine as if the singing part of uh, worship is somehow secondary. It is, according to this passage, as much a part of the filling of the Spirit and the spiritual life as, any, as the teaching of the Word. It is our response towards God, toward God and praising Him for what we have learned and studying doctrine. I mean, Colossians 3.16 is a parallel passage, and instead of using the phrase speaking to one another, it says admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Then in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, we are to comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we are to encourage one another and build up one another. Hebrews 3.13, we are to encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to be involved in each other's lives, encouraging one another in terms of sticking with doctrine, applying doctrine, and not giving up. That's the context of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.24, we are to consider, that means to think, to plan, uh, to how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and not forsaking our own assembling together as is the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And the context there is that there were uh, Jews, Jewish believers, who were because of persecution, they were, uh, they were being tempted to quit associating with other believers because if they associated with believers, then they would be identified as a Christian and come under uh, persecution from the religious status quo in Jerusalem and in, in Judea. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the, uh, your assembly together. And that means that it is important for believers to assemble together in in corporate worship and the study of the Word of God. This is not an option. This is the normal view of the spiritual life and the body of Christ as presented in the Scriptures. So that leads to a conclusion in point number six. That is that the spiritual life is not lived in isolation. It is not lived in isolation from other believers, but is viewed biblically as a life that is related to other believers. We can't fulfill these mandates to encourage one another, stimulate one another, love one another, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs if we are not meeting together as a corporate body of Christ. So the spiritual life cannot be lived uh, ultimately in isolation, but is viewed biblically as a life related to other believers. Point number seven, then, the deals with Christian fellowship, and that is the efficacy of our spiritual fellowship, of our Christian fellowship is based on the growth of impersonal love for one another. That's what undergirds this whole concept of ministry to one another is growth toward impersonal love for one another. If you don't have impersonal love for one another, unconditional love for one another, then you can't have Christian fellowship, because as soon as some believer does something you don't like, you're going to say, well, to heck with you, I'm going down to the street to the next church, and that's uh, usually what happens with a lot of people. Impersonal love for one another undergirds all of these mandates. It is the law of love, as as I explained in the introduction. 
So point number six, the spiritual life is not lived in isolation, but in relationship to other believers. Point seven, the efficacy of Christian fellowship is directly proportional, let's say, to our growth of impersonal love for one another. And then point number eight, the law of personal sacrifice, which is the fourth of our laws, is based on the principle of John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Think about that. That's the ultimate sacrifice is laying down your life for your friends. And so the law of personal sacrifice is an implementation of the principle of impersonal love for other believers. This is the foundation of evangelism. Think about that. Greater love has no one than that he lay down his life for someone else. That's the principle, is I'm willing to give up of my time, my energy, my own personal interests and desires in order to take some time to witness to uh, unbelievers. So uh, this principle of personal sacrifice undergirds evangelism, teaching in prep school, taking time. The the, the teachers in prep school uh, spend a lot of time studying. They spend time preparing, putting together lesson plans, putting together their lessons. Uh, People who work in, uh, uh, in support of the prep school in terms of training aids take a lot of time out. People who, the men who serve as deacons, all apply this principle of personal sacrifice, taking time out of their busy schedule, their personal interests, their personal hobbies in order to serve the body of Christ. Also, taking time out of your schedule to come to prayer meeting and to pray for others. Uh, The application of the principles of giving for the body of Christ all involve sacrifice to some level for the greater good of serving the body of Christ. So these four laws that we have introduced the subject with, the law of liberty, law of love, law of expediency, toward unbelievers and the law of personal sacrifice are all related to the doctrine of impersonal love and especially the principle of John 15:13 greater love has no one than this that they that one lay down his life for his friends now the principle or the situation excuse me the situation in 1 Corinthians 8 has to do with how the mature believer is going to conduct his life in relationship to a weak believer, a weaker brother who may have uh, problems with certain things that the mature believer does, or he may not have problems. See, this really we have to understand that the problem here is is not uh, the weak believer who sees the strong believer do something. And he says, that offends me. One, of course, one of the applications, areas of application that we often deal with in, uh, in this subject is the area of, of alcohol. Everybody always applies it to whether or not you ought to drink alcohol, have a glass of wine with dinner, have a glass of wine in public, uh, something like this. And the picture here that we see is not of a believer and if we stick with the context and then we'll make an application, it's not of a believer who comes over for dinner or who sees you in a restaurant at the temple and sees that you're eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols and is offended. It's not talking about the believer who sees you out at the restaurant having a beer or uh, smoking a cigarette or having a glass of wine or whatever it may be, and they're offended. This is the believer who uh, sees you having a glass of wine and rather than being offended, says, boy, this is great. And then they go out and get drunk. See, this is, you know, the other, there, there's a, the person who gets offended is a self-righteous Pharisee. And I always remember when Jesus was dealing with the self-righteous type, he would, he would, as it were, walk up to their face and drink a beer in front of them. You know, they were the one, he was constantly rubbing their nose in the truth because they weren't grace oriented. But on the other hand, he showed a sensitivity to those who were positive, but who had areas of, of weakness. So there, this involves a lot of thought and understanding and sensitivity on the part of believers. Now, 
I know that it's pretty common for us to to uh, apply this to the area of, of drinking or smoking or some of these other areas of taboos that we've talked about. And I gave a list last time of various taboos that Christians come up with and have come up with over the years as to what Christians can't do in areas uh, where there's uh, there's no direct teaching in Scripture. But let's apply this to an area that's a little less obvious. Let's say you're dealing with somebody who is uh, immature in the way they handle money. Let's say their area of weakness is materialism lust and money lust, and uh, they always think that that uh, money and the things that money can buy will provide happiness. So they happen to observe you. I'm going to make this a, a little bit of an extreme case. They happen to observe you down at the store buying a particular luxury item. Maybe you're getting a new stereo and a big screen television and, and DVD player. But they don't. what they don't realize is that for the last uh, three or four years, you have been cautiously and consistently putting away money so that now you, can, you have the money. You're using a credit card because on your credit card you get a special insurance. If anything goes wrong with this or somebody steals it, you're going to be taken care of. So you're using your credit card in order to make the purchase. What they don't know is you've got the money in the bank, and they will, uh, and then you will pay the bill when it comes. Now, this person, because their area of weakness is, is in terms of materialism lust, they see you doing this, and they, they rationalize, well, if they can do it, I'm going to do it. Now, they don't have any money in the bank. They're, they've already got a problem with credit card debt, but they rationalize from your use of, of a credit card their own sinfulness. Now, we have to be careful with this because, on the one hand, we can't run around always thinking about some believer that might see us do something and use that use our legitimate behavior to justify their sinfulness. We just can't do that. I mean, they can see anybody do anything, dress a certain way, go spend money, do anything, and use that to justify their behavior. What Paul is talking about, to use our example of the credit card and money, is if you were to uh, encourage them to do that. Say, oh, well, that's, that's okay. You, you, why don't you use your credit card and do it? You ought to have a, a big screen television and a DVD player or whatever. So go ahead and do it. Just pay it off. Don't worry about it. That's okay. That's the idea of putting a stumbling block in front of somebody. It is an, an active concept. It's not just this passive conce- concept where they see you do something off in a distance and you're totally oblivious to the fact that they're even, even around. We can't be held accountable for other people's bad decisions. But if you know that person is around and you're aware of the fact that this is an area of weakness for them and this is a problem for them, and then you engage in that activity or encourage them in some way, that's when it becomes the sin that Paul is talking about in this particular passage. So we have to be careful not to take these admonitions to some extreme level, which is what some Christians do. They've become hypersensitive about the weaker brother to where they don't want to do anything because somebody somewhere might see me do something and use it to rationalize their sinfulness, and I don't want to be guilty of that, so I'm not going to ever exercise my liberties. Well, that's not true. It wasn't true for the Apostle Paul and it wasn't true and it wasn't true for the other apostles as well there's a time and a place to exercise our liberties and there may be a time and a place when we don't exercise our liberties so this is the point that paul is making here and starting in verse 8 and that is that these neutral areas that aren't directly addressed by the word of god are not part of the spiritual life this the issue isn't spirituality You're not spiritual because you observe these taboos. You're not carnal because you do not observe these taboos. Uh, We must remember that a taboo is something that is often based on culture. Sometimes it's based on whim. Sometimes it's based on the fact that some mature believers think that, uh, or some believers who've been believers a long time, have made certain decisions with regard to, to these doubtful things, and they've decided that in their own life, 
they're not going to engage in certain behaviors, and then they want to apply that principle to other people. These are not biblical absolutes. So let's have a few points in just understanding the background here. First of all, or understand some application here, self-righteous believers use taboos to control other believers. That's usually what happens in legalism is you have uh, self-righteous believers who've come to certain conclusions in their own life, and then they try to impose those decisions on other people. So point number two, from that taboo comes a false criterion for spirituality. You know, you're spiritual because you don't do certain things or because you avoid certain things. And then the result of that, point three, is that taboos then become the uh, the factor in determining right and wrong. And unfortunately, this is just the basis of a personal opinion or personal application or prejudice and doesn't have anything to do with the absolutes of the Word of God. So, Point number one, self-righteous believers use taboos to control other people. A lot of people just aren't comfortable with freedom. Freedom means you have flexibility. And some people want everything mapped out in life. They want every decision to be, to be clearly a right or a wrong decision. But that's not true in life. There are many areas where God gives us the freedom to choose between several options. But there are many people who are uncomfortable with that, and frankly, most of those folks don't understand grace. Okay, point number three, they use these taboos then as the basis for all decision-making and for determining right and wrong, but unfortunately, these taboos are not based on the Word of God, but on personal opinion, background, or prejudice. Point four, such determinations or taboos are based on a false and often self-righteous criterion. These Such determinations are based on a false or self-righteous criterion. The norm or standard is not biblical. It has to do with a personal opinion or personal viewpoint. Sometimes you see that in relationship to movies. Some Christians, some folks just don't like movies. Some folks don't like certain kinds of movies. Some folks can't don't have much of an imagination, and they can't understand uh, they don't have value fiction. They don't understand fantasy. They don't understand things of that nature. And so they don't, they don't think anybody else should either. So they are just applying their own personal prejudices, their own personal opinions on other people. Fifth point, such determination denies freedom and flexibility to other believers. It denies freedom and flexibility to other believers. And ultimately, point number six, these taboos replace doctrine and wisdom in the soul. This is essentially what legalism is. This is what happened in Judaism, is rather than give people the freedom to make decisions, and remember in freedom, if you're free to succeed, you can always be free to fail. Freedom means that people are do have that freedom to fail. And there are folks that just don't want anybody to fail. They're afraid somebody's going to fail and make, the bad deci- make a bad decision, so they don't want to give them freedom at all. And this is all the result of just self-righteousness and arrogance. But nevertheless, we have to recognize that the that the law of the law of love applies in many areas. We have to be cognizant of those around us and those whom we may influence. This is what Paul says in verse verse 9. But take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block, somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The issue is not food. That was verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. Alcohol will not commend us to God. Going to movies will not commend us to God. Whatever the issue is, it's not a spiritual issue. We're neither worse if we do it or are better if we don't. But verse 9, Paul says, but be careful. Be careful. Watch. Blepete. Present active indicative indicate. I mean, I mean, present active imperative, indicating that this should be a normal characteristic of the believer's life. Standard operating procedure. To be careful lest your liberty somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Paul is not challenging the fact that you have a right to this. 
Now, we're going to see his own personal example in the, in the next chapter, which is uh, very illustrative. But we have to recognize there are rights. He's not questioning the fact that this is a right or a liberty, but that it can have a negative consequence on weak believers. So be careful not to let your liberty become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, what I always, I always liked a statement that Dr. Ryrie used to make in discussing this. That was that in order for your behavior to be a stumbling block to a weak believer, that weak believer has to be moving. See, you can't stumble if you're standing still. You have to be moving. So, uh, unfortunately, the people we identify as weak believers, this is the point I'm trying to make, the people we often identify as weak believers aren't what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about the self-righteous believer. He's not talking about the believer that's not going anywhere. He's not talking about the carnal believer. He's talking about the baby believer who still has a lot of human viewpoint in his conscience and his norms and standards. He doesn't understand uh, the rights and privileges of a believer yet, and consequently, because of his immaturity, is tempted in his area of weakness to justify his own sinfulness by your legitimate behavior. So we have to be uh, sensitive to weak believers. That is legitimate concern for believers. And then Paul gives the example in verse 10. For if someone sees you, third class condition, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Someone sees you who have knowledge. Now remember, this is the problem in Corinth. These are carnal, these are the carnal Corinthians. They're saying we have knowledge. This is our right. This is our privilege. This is legitimate for us. We know that this meat doesn't, uh, doesn't mean eating meat sacrificed to idols doesn't have anything to do with our spiritual life. We know there's nothing, nothing behind an idol. Uh, we, we have this right, so let's let's uh, exercise it. And Paul says, but if someone sees you who have knowledge, who think you're so mature, dining in an idol's temple, that is, you're eating at the restaurant there with the meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? See, his he does understand the issues yet because he's an immature believer. So what happens is he can't just have balance. He can't just say, oh, great, this is good. I can eat meat sacrificed to idols and go in and eat the steak. What it leads him to do is go into the next room of the temple and start getting involved in the fertility worship and the uh, sexual perversion that went along with it. He can't separate the eating the meat from the religious environment in which uh, this takes place. So the weak believer... Uh, is tempted to rationalize his sinful behavior because of the mature believer's legitimate participation in some uh, some activity. And the result is that for through your knowledge, literally in your knowledge, it is the Greek preposition in plus the instrumental dative, by means of your knowledge, by means of your emphasis on your knowledge and your your rights, by means of your knowledge, he who is weak, that is the immature believer, is ruined. And there we have the Greek uh, verb apolumi, which means destroyed his spiritual life. He, he just wipes out his spiritual life. He ends up getting involved in sin and, carn- and, and carnality because he's using your legitimate behavior to justify his, un- his illegitimate behavior. So through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, and then Paul drives the point home, because our tendency is to say, well, why should I? Why, why shouldn't he figure this out for himself? I mean, I have a legitimate right to this. That's our emphasis. We we are we are so self-absorbed. Our tendency is to always emphasize our personal rights. I have a right to this. Why should I restrict my right just because he's an immature believer and he can't handle it? And Paul drives the point home and says, because. You're worried about sacrificing this little thing, giving up, uh, eating meat. But remember, this is a person for whom Jesus Christ sacrificed everything by going to the cross and dying for them. So don't make an issue out of your paltry little sacrifice of not eating meat uh, on this particular occasion because it might uh, have a negative influence on another believer. Remember, keep things in perspective. Jesus Christ died for this other believer 
and his sacrifice was much greater than your paltry little sacrifice of not eating a steak on this particular occasion. So the believer is, is that this other brother must be kept, it must be kept in perspective that this other brother is someone for whom Jesus Christ died. Now in verse 12, Paul says, thus, by sinning against the brethren, this is clearly a sin if you don't take into account this weaker brother and, and he uses your behavior to rationalize his sin, then that is a sin. By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So by wounding their conscience has the idea of uh, creating harm to their spiritual life. And, and, of course, see, our rationalization is that, well, their conscience just needs to be straightened out. Well, eventually it will be. But for the time being, you have to apply the law of love instead of the law of liberty, and you have to be willing to uh, sacrifice uh, temporarily your freedom in order that they are not shipwrecked on their understanding uh, of doctrine. Now, this whole idea of conscience is crucial to understand this passage because the conscience itself, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, can have norms and standards in it that aren't biblically correct. But what God is saying here is that if you violate your conscience, even if the standard you have is not correct, the very act of violating your conscience sets a pattern. It builds a precedent for for making it easier to rationalize and justify sin later on down the road so that uh, giving, telling people to, uh, to live according to their conscience is important. And this passage became, became the basis in terms of understanding freedom and liberty for the emphasis on, on the value of the conscience. So this passage then influenced Puritan thought back in England in the 16th and 17th century. The principle that the Puritans understood in England at that time was in relationship to the state Anglican church, the state government where you had the church and state were united, and the state church imposed on pastors the wearing of vestments. That is, they had to wear their robes and they had to wear their clerical garb if they were going to get in the pulpit to teach. And the Puritan says, well, this violates our conscience, and therefore anything that violates our conscience is sin. This is the basis for understanding uh, liberty and freedom. And so the, in the development of their uh, theories and understanding of political freedom and political liberty, it put an emphasis on the freedom of conscience, that the state does not have the right to determine freedom, but freedom, freedom of conscience comes from God. Now, John Locke was a Puritan, grew up in a Puritan home, and this was uh, part of his his uh, training and his background, and he understood liberty in this sense, liberty of conscience, that the state is not the source of our freedoms and our rights. And, of course, that whole concept found its way into the Declaration of Independence as uh, written by Jefferson, even though he was a deist. He still was heavily influenced by Locke and had the idea that our rights, our inalienable rights, are bestowed not by the government, but by our creator. If the government is the source of our freedoms, then the government defines our conscience, and the government is the final authority. But the scriptures teach that our freedoms don't come from, from the government. Our freedoms come from God. Our conscience and our freedom to follow our conscience comes from God. And so this became a crucial plank in the history of ideas and history of understanding uh, political liberty and political freedom. So this passage goes far beyond, I mean, the significance and application of this passage goes far beyond just handling doubtful things. It has had a tremendous influence as the foundation for the understanding of personal liberty and freedom that we so cherish and as, as was eventually uh, put into the Bill of Rights. Paul's conclusion in verse 13 is this, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, if anything, put, take out the word food and put what, anything in there that is a, an area of doubtful things. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. 
So this is the law of personal sacrifice. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. And then Paul is going to give us a personal example of this. In fact, he's going to turn the tables on the Corinthians starting in chapter 9, and we'll come back to look at that uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to understand these important areas of doubtful things and the relationship of each believer to other believers in the body of Christ. Father, we pray that if anyone is here this morning that is not a member of the body of Christ, that is unsure if they're a member of the body of Christ, unsure of their eternal destiny, or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, including every sin that you will commit. It's paid in full. It's not a matter of your earning it. It's not a matter of your deserving it. It's not a matter of your working for it. It is a matter of your accepting his payment as a free gift. You can't add anything to it. It is a simple matter of faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do right where you sit is simply accept that as true, believe it, put your faith alone, your trust alone, your reliance alone in Jesus Christ. And at that instant you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today that we may apply them in our own lives, make them a part of our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.